Okay. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by WitchSchool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Welcome to Nature Folk. This is Selena Fox, and Nature Folk is brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, as well as the podcast that follows, Circle Talk. We want to give thanks to Witch School International and the Pagans Tonight Radio Network for their support of our Circle Sanctuary Radio Ministries. Tonight on Nature Folk, we take a look at Samhain Altars. We'll explore some ways of creating altars, working with them, and having altars as part of Samhain festivities, rituals, meditations, divinations. Samhain, Samhain, summer's end, veil is thin. Samhain, Samhain, spirit friends, veil is thin. Samhain is a time for honoring the dead, for marking the transition between the old year and the new year coming. For the ancient Celtic peoples, it was the new year time. For many pagans, druids, Wiccans, and other nature spirituality practitioners, It is a spiritual new year. It is a time between the worlds. It is a time for looking to the past, looking to the future, and being in the eternal now and connecting with dimensions that not only link humankind alive today with each other and with the greater circle of nature, but that also involves connecting with the spirits of beloved dead, of ancestors who have gone before and that are said to come and connect as part of community, household, and individual observances at this time. It's also a time to project into the future for future people, future ways of being. Samhain has been celebrated in many ways over the ages. As Christianity became the dominant religion in old Europe, Samhain celebrations continued 
but under Christian names, All Hallows, or All Saints' Day, November 1st, All Souls' Day, November 2nd. The name Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve, and Halloween today in the U.S. and in many parts of the world not only has pagan underpinnings and some Christian underpinnings, but has emerged as more of a secular celebration of the last of the harvest, of the beginning of the colder months, the darker months, a time long associated with the other world, with things magical. In creating one or more Samhain altars, a good place to start is to take a look at your own observances of Samhain and what Samhain means to you. Is it your new year? Is it a time for letting go, assessing, and repatterning? Is it a holiday that also is intertwined with Halloween? Or perhaps some other holiday that comes around this time of year, the Day of the Dead, for those of Mexican and some other forms of Latin American heritage. Begin by reflecting on Samhain, what it means to you and for those who will be connecting with the Samhain altar. And also reflect on what is the purpose of your Samhain altar. For me, I have multiple Samhain altars. And I will be drawing from some of my own personal experiences in creating and working with Samhain altars as we continue our explorations tonight. If you have a year-round personal altar, one way of having a Samhain altar is to work with your year-round altar and simply add some Samhain imagery to it. Some, in addition to having a personal altar, will have a household altar or shrine. In like fashion, you can deck it out for the Samhain season. Some things that are easily obtainable for many people are pumpkins, mini pumpkins, gourds, other symbols of late autumn, and those can be added, or objects that are representational of those objects. I have both 
actual mini pumpkins that I use on Samhain altars in my own home, as well as pumpkin images made out of ceramic, made out of wood, and some other materials. One of the advantages of having things that can be preserved from year to year, such as a ceramic pumpkin, is that it's something that can carry memories from year to year and is something that you do not have to do as much upkeep with as something that's more organic. That's especially important if you have creatures in your household that may be attracted to some biodegradable symbols that um, you may consider using. Another consideration as you consider Samhain and what altar or altars to have is when to start decorating for Samhain and creating an altar. For some people, they start October 1st for all of those in the Northern Hemisphere that will be celebrating Samhain on the 31st of October or thereabout. So there is a month-long celebration and preparations for Samhain night. Some people enjoy adding to an altar every few days. Certainly, I began creating Samhain altars several weeks ago as I gathered objects that I've used in the past and added some new ones. Where to put your Samhain altar? So much of this has to do with its purpose. If you have a private personal altar that you have in your bedroom or your study or some other private place, then you may put some objects on it that are things you wouldn't normally have on display, and that can add a special dimension to your altar. Many people, though, will have a Samhain altar in the living area of one's home where one does entertaining. And if the purpose of your Samhain altar is to bring Samhain dimensions to celebrations and social gatherings that you have around Samhain time, it makes perfect sense to have something in a place that's quite visible and that can be appreciated by other people who are coming for the activities. How big to make your Samhain altar? This is personal choice as well as circumstance. Some people have a small table that they use as an altar, and certainly that will work. For people with limited space, an altar can be put on a windowsill, on a ledge, on a bookshelf, 
on a top of a chest of drawers. And for people who are in places where having one's spiritual orientation in view of visitors or roommates is not the best option, there are some who will create an altar in a drawer, pull out the drawer, altar is present. Done with altar, put it away. Or some people have an altar arrangement that is on a small box that's easily portable or on some type of table with wheels that can be moved in and out of visible space. Some people like to have altars in every room of the house to celebrate and to observe a Sabbath festival. And certainly I have uh, many altars around different parts of my house as part of my way of observing the holiday. So much of Samhain altar making and use really is um, a matter of personal preference and style, as well as what type of time one has to devote to the altar making and altar use. I think it can be very powerful to start creating one or more altars several weeks before Samhain and to allow the altar to take shape as a kind of artistic work in progress. Sometimes you may find as Samhain approaches additional imagery could possibly be found online and could be printed out, or cards or objects may be given to you, or as you walk into the woods or in the fields or go into the gardens, there may be symbols of the season that call to you to be included in the Samhain altar. I'd like to shift now in talking about several types of Samhain altars by location. Many people have a Samhain altar that may be more commonly known as a Halloween display on their front porch or doorstep. Often this takes the form of a pumpkin and some other decorations that are connected with this time of year. They not consider it an altar per se, but by having those symbols present and visible, it is a way of converging attention and intention with the celebration and observance of the holiday. I like to have on my front porch altar two pumpkins that have been obtained from the local area. In fact, one of our early Samhain altar crafting traditions 
is to go to one of the local farmer's markets where there are many types of pumpkins out available for viewing and for purchase. And typically I will get a couple pumpkins, pretty equal in size, to put on either side of my main door into the house. Often I will get some gourds or mini pumpkins or other smaller items that I will put on my kitchen window ledge as a kind of altar as I uh, go visit the kitchen throughout the season. Some people get quite elaborate with their threshold, front door, door um, stop, um, front yard displays. And a wonderful thing that many people do is to take a tour of various Halloween and or Samhain displays in the neighborhood, in the local area. For me, Samhain is a sacred spiritual time. Halloween is a form of it that's a secular form, a multicultural form that's in pop culture and I will freely interwind, intertwine the um, Samhain imagery and some Halloween imagery for different types of altars that I create. So I may get some jack-o'-lantern images that hold votive candles, and while they are designed for people in their Halloween celebrations, they fit for Samhain altars that I create to help me observe in a sacred way this time of year. So we have the Samhain at the front door altar. Could have a wreath on your door, pumpkins on the steps. You can have lanterns and other images. If there's trick-or-treating that happens on or near Halloween time, uh, clearly having some decor like that that's in the spirit of the season is a social thing and a fun thing for that custom that continues on. Another form of entryway Samhain altar is what I call Samhain in the front hall. So right inside the door as you go into your home is a wonderful place to put some type of Samhain altar. It not only can be a welcoming of guests that come in at that time of year for visits and dinners and parties, but it can be a kind of welcoming the spirit of the holiday in all of its forms. I have a small altar table in my foyer in my home, and I decorate that in various ways from year to year 
to be a kind of welcoming the Samhain spirit into the home. In another part of my house, I have what I call the Sabbath altar. I have a large bowl with the names of the eight Sabbaths that are in this beautiful ceramic piece. And I turn the name of the Sabbath front and center as I go through the wheel of the year. And I change out the contents of that bowl. So for Samhain time, I have some many pumpkins that are actually made of a more durable uh, material and that are imitations of the actual real mini pumpkins that I have in my kitchen. And I fill the bowl with pumpkins as a symbol of the season. And on either side, I have some lights and some other images. When you have a Sabbath altar, you can change that altar every six and a half to seven weeks as you turn the wheel of the year. So it's another way of welcoming the spirit of the Sabbath into the home. Another place where I have an altar is in my study, and there I presently have it set up as a beloved dead altar with photographs of beloved dead, those who have died in the past year. Some ways of creating a Samhain altar of the dead and for the dead is to have one altar and on it to put photographs and tokens of remembrance of those who have died since the previous Samhain. Another way to have a Samhain altar for beloved dead is to have an altar with photographs, tokens of remembrance, heirlooms, sometimes writing the names down of various ancestors and deceased loved ones that one especially wishes to contact during the Samhain season. I've done quite a bit of work with genealogy And as a result, I have many names of many ancestors, not as many photographs and tokens of remembrance. So in creating a more universal altar for all my relations who have crossed over, whether I physically knew them in this life or not, I will have some images of some that I wish to connect with or some token representing them. And I will also have my notebook, which I call the Book of Names, which has the family tree charts in it. Another approach 
to creating and working with a solemn altar for the dead is to have an individual altar for each deceased loved one that one seeks to commune with, to connect with, to remember, to pay respects to at the Samhain time. What kinds of things to put on the altar? Photographs. Objects that the loved one has given you. Objects that remind you of that loved one. If there were memorial cards, poems, other things connected with the death passages of that loved one, to have those present. Some people will take a blossom from a memorial flower display at the time of funeral or memorial and burial and then preserve that flower, dry it, preserve it in some way, and then place it on the altar for the dead as one links in with that beloved loved one. One thing that I do every year in connection with a solemn altar for the dead is to have a place setting with a plate and a cup and a candle for all the beloved dead and ancestors that I seek to honor. Often I will have that altar set up facing the west part of my home. The west in the circle craft tradition which I practice is connected with the setting sun and moving into old age and the end of life. Sometimes I will have multiple candles. My cup has the name Samhain inscribed on it. My plate is an antique metal plate that I use for offerings of food for the beloved dead. On Samhain night, I will take some of every beverage that I'm consuming, if I'm with others that we are consuming, and place it in the cup. And some bits of every type of food that's being consumed and place it on the plate. Then calling to beloved dead and ancestors to come to dine with us to partake energetically of the food and beverage. Part of the lore of Halloween and trick-or-treating 
says that the trick-or-treat custom of going door-to-door and getting goodies actually had its origins in offering traditions for the beloved dead. It was said that if you remembered your beloved dead and ancestors with food and drink, invited them at your table, that you would be blessed or have a treat in the year ahead. And if you failed to honor them in this way, you would have some opportunities to problem solve or the trick. Having candles that can go throughout Samhain night safely can be a wonderful thing. And one way to do that, if you're not going to be in attendance of the altar or altars where there are candles um, set up to provide light and energy, is to use votive candles or even better yet, battery-operated candles and or tea lights. In addition to presenting offerings and inviting the dead to come and be present at your Samhain meal and your Samhain observance, another tradition that you might find powerful is what's known as the Dumb Supper. To have an altar or a place setting at the actual table where everyone is eating that is set up altar style for the beloved dead to eat the meal in silence from the start of the meal until it concludes. Another tradition connected with the altar for the dead is the food offerings and the beverage offerings after being presented on Samhain night the next day to take those offerings to go to an old, beautiful tree or some other sacred place in nature and to set the food offerings on the ground and pour the beverage as a kind of libation. In addition to having a Samhain feast for the dead altar and a Samhain altar that honors one or more deceased loved ones and ancestors, you may want to have a Samhain altar that connects you with death and images of death. For this holiday is one that's associated with that other world. I have a number of images, um, some people might call them ghostly type images, but personifications of death, certainly the skull or in Day of the Dead observances, the sugar skull, are connected not only with this holiday time, but with that whole part of the cycle of living 
the death part. Having an altar with imagery connected with death, it may be skeleton figures, it may be um, draped figures, it may be a combination of forms of death as Grim Reaper, as liberator, as healer, as midwife, having an altar where you pay your respects to death as part of the circle of life, death, and rebirth can be very powerful. One way of working with the spirit of death altar is as you reflect on death, connect with it, is to write your own obituary, to set down thoughts for what funeral, memorial, or other death passage rites you would like to have when your time comes. It is a way of getting in touch with that part of the cycle of being. And as you create those ideas, transcripts of ritual, other thoughts, you can then add them to the altar and as additional thoughts come to you as your thinking evolves, you will have them at a place that's very accessible. Many people, though, are very private when it comes to making those kinds of choices and may prefer to have those thoughts, those wishes, those intentions, not out in the open, but put in a book form or put into an envelope that may or may not be visible on the altar. If there's an altar cloth, it might be tucked under it. If there's a big candle, it might be set on top of it. Some other types of altars to create and work with at Solentine are the divination altar. There are many forms of assessing past, present, and future through divination. I'd like to talk about a couple of these. A divination altar that has a surface big enough to be able to do some type of card spread. And working with oracle cards or tarot cards, one can take a look at past influences, present influences, future influences. In addition to having a divination tool, you'll likely find it helpful to have some kind of divination journal or other means for recording what divination work you do. So if you have a divination altar with a deck of oracle cards or tarot cards, cards could be placed right in the center of that space and then other objects one would need in the divination ritual would also be set on that altar. Some like to have a symbol of each of the five elements of nature, earth, 
a pentacle, a dish of salt, a stone, a platter with some soil or with some cornmeal or other substance on it, for air, a feather, a quill pen, incense burner with incense, chimes, for fire, a lamp, a wand, a particular kind of candle, for water, a chalice or a bowl representing the element water, for spirit, a clear quartz crystal, some sacred object representing spiritual tradition or one's inner self. Some use the cauldron as a symbol of spirit. One can actually have a cauldron altar with five cauldrons each dedicated to one of the five elements of nature, a cauldron of earth for earth, a cauldron that's an incense burner for air, a cauldron with a candle in it for fire, a cauldron with water in it for water, a cauldron in the center with a crystal for spirit. In addition to a divination altar, one may want to have a sacred fire as a kind of altar where one does sacred work. Now, this could be a hearth fire and symbols of what one seeks to release from one's life, to let go, can be cast into that fire as a gesture and an expression of the intention to let go of old ways of being, of what is no longer needed. A bonfire outside can serve that purpose. And while a bonfire may not look like many altars that are set up to have a variety of different ceremonial tools on them that are used for rituals, a bonfire can be its own kind of altar with just a few items nearby, things that would be used to feed the fire, to poke the fire, to arrange the fire, And ultimately, when the fire has completed itself through ritual or through time, to have some water that would extinguish any remnants of the fire for safety. So a fire altar can be one of release, of purification, of letting go, a symbolic cleansing of one's life and lifestyle. A fire also can be used to energize, to reinforce intention, to strengthen connections, 
in addition to a hearth fire or a bonfire serving as a kind of fire altar, one can have a fire altar by having a metal cauldron, usually having some sand or other substance in the base, and then a fire can be candled, um, kindled through a candle on it or in some other way. And that can be an ingredient in some other type of altar and used for healing and repatterning and cleansing. Some other types of altars that can be created at Samhain include what I call the Samhain Religious Freedom Altar. Across the U.S. and some other parts of the world, pagans often get in the news for their spirituality, their religion, their folk practices. Part of it has to do with witch lore, um, so connected with Halloween and other holidays. Something that I do as part of my Samhain work is send out prayers for equal rights for Wiccans, witches, Druids, other pagans at this time of year. I have symbols of liberty and justice. Indeed, Lady Liberty and Lady Justice are ancient Roman goddesses from the pagan past that have now been cycled into the U.S. public art and also appear in other parts of the world. But one way of creating a religious freedom altar as part of a Samhain altar building is to have some images of goddesses connected with the land where you are. So for me, Lady Liberty for Liberty or Libertas, an image of justice for the justice, for wisdom, Minerva and or Athena, an image for other virtues, other dimensions, to have these powerful forms of the divine present on a religious freedom altar reinforces the power of that intention. Candles can be lit for situations and people who are in need of help. Reinforcing prayers well wishes through the Religious Freedom Altar can be a powerful experience. Home altars can be quite versatile and can give a lot of flexibility. 
but an evening workshop on Samhain altars would not be complete without talking about other types of Samhain altars. If you are part of a pagan group or community, then some type of community group Samhain altar can not only be beautiful, but it can be a way of deepening the members of that group or community with each other as well as the spirit of the holiday. One of the things that I do at workshops and at ceremonies that I facilitate at this time of year at Circle Sanctuary and elsewhere, I invite those who are participating in a ceremony or workshop to bring a symbol representing Samhain to oneself personally. And at the start of our time together, we add them to the community altar. We create altar together. And by having different symbols that are present and learning the story of the symbol, because that's one way of doing this approach, is as each symbol is added, the person adding that symbol talks about its meaning to oneself and what one is bringing with that symbol to the group, to the altar, to the sacred space. Working with a community altar in this way is not only a decorative form of others contributing Samhain symbols, but by having that altar present during ritual, during meditation, and other spiritual practices, then that imbues the objects that are there with that dynamic. So it's a wonderful way of energizing Samhain articles and being able to take them back into one's own home space. Another thing that one can do as a community altar at Samhain time is to have a massive altar as a remembrance for beloved dead. Every year at the Samhain gathering at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve, we have many tables put end to end along several of the walls. We drape them with black, symbol of the night, and a color connected with with Samhain, black as mystery, black as the fertile dark. And then all the participants in our festival are invited to bring tokens of remembrance, symbols, candles, images, photographs of one or more departed loved ones. So we have a large collectively created community altar for the beloved dead and ancestors. And each person gets their own little area and the various areas kind of connect with each other. And it's quite a spectacular 
an outpouring of respect and remembrance for the beloved dead and ancestors, but it also makes it possible for us to more fully connect with each other, to recognize the beloved dead of others. One part of our community altar that we do is the community altar of the beloved dead who have died within the past year. And we do endeavor to get a photograph of each of the people who have been part of our community or associated with us in some way. And then to have their image and sometimes we have the image and their name printed out as well so that people see names as well as images for those who are, we are remembering. It can be a very good thing to have some incense burning when you do altars for the dead, be there in your home or in a community space. One of my favorite incenses to burn is frankincense and getting some jaw sticks of, or stick incense as it's also known, of frankincense can um, be a wonderful addition to a communal as well as a personal Samhain altar honoring the dead. In addition to community altars for Samhain celebrations, I'd like to share another location for Samhain altars, and that is the cemetery. Visiting one or more cemeteries where departed loved ones and ancestors are, can be a powerful experience, especially at this time of year. I think it is very powerful and appropriate to be able to take some fresh flowers or some other type of offerings to place on or near the gravestone at the cemetery. Some people, Day of the Dead style, will spend hours at a cemetery at the grave or graves of loved ones, not only cleansing the grave, but actually having a picnic on or near the grave. Here again, the pattern of honoring the beloved dead of the ancestors to come and observe Samhain with you, Day of the Dead with you, Halloween, All Saints, All Souls Day with you, can be a wonderful tradition. There are different types of altars that are connected with the Days of the Dead, which for many people coincides with the Celtic Samhain, as well as um, the Multicultural Halloween. For some, it's the 31st of October. Other people celebrate at the beginning of November. Some will celebrate on November 5th and or 6th, which is the more exact midpoint 
between fall equinox and winter solstice. But regardless of where and when you do your observation, know that an altar can enhance observances of many types. In closing, reflect on Samhain. Reflect on ways of observing Samhain. Reflect on the use of one or more Samhain altars as an aid, as an enhancement to your Samhain alignment and observances. Reflect on what you would like to have present on the altar what the meaning of that altar is for you, who you would like to have access to that altar. Make a note of your Samhain altar work that can help you build on it from year to year. And I also suggest that you take one or more photographs of any Samhain altar that you create. And if you feel it is appropriate, to be able to share that with others you know and love and care about. And even going beyond that, sharing it with the larger world. Samhain. Samhain. Summer's end. The veil is thin. Come, spirit friend, to Samhain. 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 I wish you all a good Samhain and preparations up for this time of year. I invite you to stay tuned for Circle Talk for more time of the season um, observances and reflections. I also invite you to get some more information about ways to celebrate Samhain at the Circle Sanctuary website. Some of the things that I've gathered together in my online guide celebrating the seasons are highlighted at our main website, www.circlesanctuary.org. I also invite you to listen to Nature Folk and Circle Talk in coming weeks, for there will be more Samhain-related and Samhain-themed podcasting. Next week, we'll be taking a look at celebrating Samhain and Halloween. Similarities and differences in those two holidays and some ways to create your own personal household and community celebrations.
I also invite you to check out Sawan photographs, videos, and other materials on social media. You can follow Circle Sanctuary Community at its main page, at its group page on Facebook. We're on Instagram and on Twitter. And I also post quite a bit of information about Sawan on my social media sites that include Selena Fox Updates, my main page on Facebook, Selena underscore Fox on Twitter, and Selena Fox on Instagram. I wish you all blessings as you prepare for Samhain. And for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere that may be listening to this show, I invite you um, to work with all this Samhain activity and information um, six months down the road when Samhain comes to where you are. I give thanks to the divine as one and as many to the divine and forms connected with Samhain, the wise old goddess, the wise old god, their sacred unity. Many blessings, blessed Samhain. Now I invite David and or Jeanette Ewing to come on and tell us about our circle talk tonight and our music that will take us into our next Circle Radio show. Good evening. Hello. Oh, David here. Uh, yes, yeah, Samhain blessings. Samhain blessings to you. It is that time of year. Um, all of a sudden, it seems like. But here it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so tonight on Circle Talk... Um, Deborah Rose will be speaking with uh, somebody from the. Let's see, what, make sure I get the name right. Um, yeah, Kentucky Ghost Hunters. Um, we'll be hearing about hunting oh. and the paranormal and stuff. It'll be really interesting. It'll be kind of different. We haven't had anybody on with that topic before on Circle Talk, so this will be really, uh, really cool. That'll be fabulous, and and um, we have some events that are coming up. And uh, a few announcements before we get into the music. Uh, Circle Sanctuary Samhain Gathering is the last weekend in October, and I'll also be doing a full moon circle right before Samhain Gathering. And this Thursday night, I'm doing a workshop at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve on creating Samhain and Halloween rituals. And you're... Um, involved in doing an event in the greater Washington, D.C. area at the end of the month. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. So next weekend is the fourth Hallowed Homecoming Salon Retreat that we put on out here in Northern Virginia in, um, in near Quantico Marine Corps Base at a place called Prince William Forest Park. It's a national park that we hold our event, and we have cabin camping um, Dining Hall with all the meals. We'll have Byron Ballard as our special guest this year. Looking forward to hearing from her. Um, and it's, uh, yes, that's coming up. It's our fourth time. So we're uh, kind of excited about that. 
Yeah, it's a wonderful event. And this coming Saturday in Washington, D.C., on the National Mall, there will be the 1,000 Goddesses Gathering. And we have several Circle Sanctuary community members that will be there. Eldridge um, will be coordinating our booth, and Reverend Tristan and Zan, her partner, will be stopping by and helping out And later in the day. Um, Janice, also known as Lady Amber Dawn, will be there helping with our booth. So if you happen to be in the Washington, D.C. area on October 20th, stop by the National Mall and take part in the 1,000 Goddesses event. And Toronto, Ontario, Canada, November 1st through 7th is the Parliament of the World's Religions and Circle Sanctuary will have a delegation that will be taking part in ritual and doing presentations and doing networking and even doing some um, music at this year's Parliament of the World's Religions. And for those that get there a bit early, there will be a Samhain Rite right in the heart of Toronto. I'm going to be helping with that. Catherine Starrs, one of the main organizers. So for more information about that, um, check out our social media platforms. We'll keep you updated. Thanks again for all of you who have tuned in tonight. And what music do we have taking us into Circle Talk tonight? Yeah, so tonight we're going to transition with a song by uh, Dave the Bard. And it's called Sow and Eve, one of our favorites.
Circle Talk Radio, a production of Circle Sanctuary's Radio Ministries program. Join us here every Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern, following the, following the Nature Folk program with Reverend Selena Fox, as we discuss various topics of interest to the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Sanctuary Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing and Circle Sanctuary Minister Deborah Rose. And before we begin, we would like to express our thanks to the Witches School International and their Pagan Tonight Radio Network for allowing us this opportunity to reach the community. For more information about Witches School, please visit them on the web 
at www.witchschool.com. And for more information about Circle Sanctuary, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org. Welcome to our show. My name is Deborah Rose, and I'm your host tonight on Circle Talk. We'll be talking with Dean Knight, the Kentucky Ghost Hunter. Dean has a weekly podcast, The Kentucky Ghost Hunter, Connecting the World with the Unknown, on BBS Radio, which, ironically, just follows our show at 9 p.m. Central or 10 p.m. Eastern. You can get more information about the show and Dean at his website at KentuckyGhostHunter.com. Welcome, Dean. Dean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you guys hear me now? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Yay. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. I started talking and everything just went blank for a second. I'm talking to you uh, through a computer network myself uh, that's hooked up to our uh, station up here at BBS. And uh-huh. uh, I guess somebody had to hit a button somewhere they weren't supposed to, so I apologize. There you go. Well, you sound real clear. Well, we are so excited. This is a topic that we've talked about for several years and having on. It's obviously very seasonal with the Halloween season. But, uh, and again, I've had a little bit of experience with people in my life who this is a, a serious pursuit. So tell me how you, tell me a little, first tell us a little bit about yourself, Dean. Well, I have been doing ghost hunting since 1999, and uh, I don't really, the first, when I first started out, I don't guess it was ghost hunting, it was more goofing off, and then as uh, the years went by, I got more serious about it, and around, uh, I guess it was 2014, uh, something like that, uh, I was asked to do a show on a radio station, and I did it, and uh, we've been on radio and podcast ever since. We've investigated different locations. Some of them famous, some not, like uh, uh, Edinburgh in, uh, in Iowa, which is an insane asylum. We've been there. We've been to several cemeteries. Uh, the Octagon House in Franklin, Kentucky. I, I know you're from Kentucky, so you probably know where Franklin, yeah. Kentucky is. But the Octagon House up there, we've been there several times. Actually, uh, one of our uh, psychics that went with us one time says that I, I have a spirit there that doesn't like me too much. He keeps screaming and hollering when I get there, who seems to be the owner of the property in a past lifetime. But uh, kind of funny when a, a psychic tells you that somebody's cussing you out and you can't hear them or see them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we we just enjoy doing it. And we've got we've made lots of friends, uh, met a lot of uh, investigators over the years, and uh, the show's becoming pretty popular. So uh, we're, just, we're just glad to be here talking with you folks and, uh, and keep going with what we're doing. So how did you become interested in the paranormal? Like, did you read ghost stories as a kid? Did you... Uh, have you know did you you know see something eerie i mean what actually just got you started in paranormal in general you know that's one of the first things people always ask you when you talk about paranormal is how'd you get it get into it and actually yeah. my experience yeah it happened oof, i guess and i was i don't remember the exact age it was maybe seven or eight nine somewhere in that range you know our memories mm-hmm. was our memory from then but i remember this this specifically because I had an uncle that had passed away and our whole family went up to a place called Crown Point, Indiana. Uh, there we had the funeral and, and back in our day, I'm, I'm 53 and back in our day, all the families used to stay at the house of uh, mm-hmm. the grandparents. We didn't go to hotels and all that because they didn't have, you know, buku hotels everywhere you went. This Crown Point mm-hmm. had maybe one hotel 
and you really didn't want to stay there much. You know, you could get moved out by the roaches if you stayed there. So we, we stayed at grandparents' house. Uh-huh. And uh, at night, uh, we were all asleep in the living room. And my grandfather had a house in Crown Point, Indiana that had a, a downstairs and an upstairs apartment, too. And he had a stamp in the upstairs apartment. We were in the living room portion of the upstairs apartment. But I'd say very, very mm-hmm. late night, uh, me and my dad woke up. We heard footsteps coming up the stairs and going through the hallway into a room. And then it would come back out and go down the hallway and go down the stairs. And it would come back and do it again. And uh, it happened probably for 30 minutes straight. And my mm-hmm. dad told me, he said, hey, that's your grandfather. Because it was his son that just passed away. And he right. said, that's your grandfather pacing the floor, so uh, I'm going to get up and see if he's okay. Well, when he got up and the, the walking stopped, there was nobody in the hallway. And my dad came back in. He didn't say much about it. He just kind of laid back down on the on the, the little uh, covers we had put on the floor there for everybody. Uh-huh. And uh, all of a sudden, it started doing it again. And these were very distinct footsteps. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, creaking of the house. And then if you've ever been in an old house, I'm sure most of your listeners right. have. You can tell when somebody's walking up and down the stairs of an old house because you can hear every every step they make. Yeah, these and it did footsteps. it a few more minutes. Yeah, yeah, these were footsteps, and uh, I started getting a little scared then because he went back out again and there was nobody there again. And this happened two more times until uh, it finally stopped and everybody went to sleep. But that was the first time I ever had an experience with paranormal because I knew. Well, my dad did too, but we knew that what it was is that was my uncle. Uh, he had not passed on yet. He was actually walking up and down this because that's where he grew up. He grew up. That was the home that's been there forever, and he grew up there. So that was my first experience with paranormal, and it just blossomed after that. And then when I got a little bit older, I'd start taking uh, – we didn't have digital cameras back then. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers the instant cameras where you took a picture, and the picture just mm-hmm. came out on its own. Uh, but we started doing that, and I'd catch orbs here and there. And like I said, around 2000, I was working with somebody, and they said, hey, you're from Kentucky. I said, yeah. They said, well, hey, you're the Kentucky ghost hunter. And ever since that day, it's stuck, and I'm known as the Kentucky ghost hunter now. There you go. For our listeners who don't know, uh, explain what an orb is. Well, you know what? There's a lot of different people that give an explanation of it. And one of the things about the paranormal that a lot of people need to understand is we don't really know what we're dealing with. Uh, people think we know what we're dealing with, and we got people on TV and stuff that say they know what they're dealing with, but we really have no clue. We think an orb is a, a ball of energy. Uh, some right. people call it a, a spirit, that, you know, the energy that comes out of a body. That's the spirit itself. It's like, it looks like a ball of energy. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. it is at this point. Uh, I'm still investigating that, but that's what it is. And you can only really – sometimes you can – like an experience I had in a cemetery up in uh, – you might have heard of Peabody Mines up around the Ohio County area. It's just mm-hmm. from Louisville. And I went there to the cemetery one time, and I was taking pictures. And I, I took a picture with – and you got to take them at flash at, at night to catch an orb because um, if you don't, all you get is black. But it, right. I was taking a picture with a flash, and something above me actually flashed back at me so so vivid that it actually blinded me for a second. And wow. uh, we found out after we – looked at the picture and everything that was it was an orb that did that so we're not quite sure what it is but it does it does have some kind of uh energy to it and it uh, and i've seen close-ups of it where you can see energy some people say they see faces in them uh some people Mm -hmm. say they see little flowers in them which i'm sure it's not a flower Mm -hmm. it's something we don't know what it is so right we don't know if it's paranormal or not but we're going to say it is for a while until we find out different 
I know, like you said, in the old photography or what I used up until the last 10 years, um, um, film photography, you can get them. Can you get it with digital cameras? A lot of people prefer to use digital now, but the trouble with digital is you can take pictures and that you think you have gotten orbs. And if you really look at glass, well, I'll tell you a story I've got. I've had somebody that took a picture in a cemetery one time and said, hey, look at all these orbs. There's like a hundred of them. The trouble was mm-hmm. it was cloudy. But what he actually took a picture of was uh, mist because the, the mm-hmm. water mist will reflect light. So he assumed he got orbs, and what he did was got reflections of uh, uh, water particles. Right. So it's, digital cameras are a lot stronger, and they do take more vivid pictures, but you've got to be real careful about whether you've really captured something or not because sometimes you think you have and you haven't. Yeah. How important is equipment and technology in paranormal investigations? What type of things do you use? Now well, that? if you've ever seen any of the, the uh, shows that are on TV, we use about the same equipment they do. Uh, we have a camera that will uh, use laser grids and will map a person's body and show a stick figure. Some people have seen them on TV. On, I think it's Ghost Adventure uses it too. But uh, we use that. We use digital recorders. We use... Uh, Anything you can think of. We've even used sounding rods before. Anything that we can find that uh, we can use to try to make contact, we do. And like I said before, you got to understand, though, we some of these things that we're using now today, we don't know if they really work or not. We assume they do, but there's mm-hmm. been a lot of controversy in some of the new stuff that's coming out because, uh, you know, when they say they manipulate computers and stuff like that, if you're talking to a spirit from the 1890s, I don't know how they would even know what, how to manipulate a computer unless they've gotten really right. smart over the last couple hundred years. But uh, we use everything that we can, but uh, usually our, our best tool is using our uh, our own senses. Um, spirits, you can feel spirits. And I, I know you've seen it. They say, oh, I've got electricity going through me and stuff like that, but I've experienced mm-hmm. that. So sometimes, you know, so many people say, that, well, somebody just walked on my grave. There's a good chance they didn't, but you might have been making contact with something you didn't know at the time. So that's what it feels like when you get that feeling that, you know, somebody's walked on my grave. And we get that a lot. Yeah. We've 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 come to distinguish, uh, you know, it, it, using that as if whether, whether we've got something there that we're communicating with or we're going to try to communicate with. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got motion detectors we use where they go off for no reason, but we use them as a, a means to communicate too, like one flash for yes and two flashes for no. And we've had uh, spirits communicate with us through that, where they could just pass in front of a motion detector one time or two times, and we're able to communicate. Very limited communication, but it is communication. Are some people more perceptive to paranormal activities than others? I mean, are some people, like, sensitive? Like, can you feel without equipment if something's there? Well, I think everybody can feel without equipment as long as you train yourself to uh, distinguish between a cold chill because it's cold and a cold chill because it's something near you. I've been in buildings before where it was 94 degrees, and uh, I've gotten cold chills. That more or less was not cold air because wow. it was too hot. Yeah, I didn't have a fever, but a lot of paranormal investigators, when you know what you're doing and you, you train yourself a little bit, you can you get sensations like that that actually tells you there's something there. Uh, we've also had people in our group, my wife especially, has had been scratched a couple times. Uh, people say, you know, they try to say that's some kind of evil entity or whatever that's doing the scratching, but we we tend to see, feel. The spirits are, are, are electrical or they're made of energy. If they try to touch you, you know, energy and touching a person. I don't know if any country folk out there has ever you know, touched an electric fence, but if you hit one strong right. enough, it's going to leave a mark on you. And we think that's just somebody, you know, if you, you 
it's like Denise said. Denise Wilkins is a uh, medium that works with us a lot, and, and she's mm-hmm. said it's like if you ever went and touched somebody on their shoulder, if you notice, usually what you only touch them with is your three fingers. You don't touch them with your whole hand. You'll rub your you know, hand right. down, but only three fingers will touch. So she thinks that's what it is more than anything is you have three fingers going across the skin somewhere where something's touching you and it actually reacts to your body. It leaves a mark mm-hmm. on it. And, uh, you know, people are paranoid. They automatically scream something evil's amongst us. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that's passed on aren't evil. So if they are spirits, I doubt they're going to turn evil when they get there. So tell me about your uh, opinion or impressions. What, what is a ghost and why you're able to get them or why they haunt or um, I'm just really fascinated by that. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, it, it's a controversy whether if we're dealing with actual people that have passed on or if we're dealing with something that just hasn't been discovered yet. And right. I'm leaning more to um, maybe it's something that hasn't been discovered yet. Now, there is instances where we've said, hey, are, is so-and-so here, and we've got a yes or we've got a no answer through an EVP, which is an electronic voice phenomenon, which you can pick up by uh-huh. using a digital recorder. Uh, we have had some communications with where we've caught people singing that uh, at Octagon House I was talking about. We actually caught a young lady that was singing. Uh, she did it every, like, 30 minutes, but she would hum a tune. And that is actually not a haunting it's called a residual haunting what we believe is just like right. a, a void in time or the same thing happens over and over again so many times that even right. after you die it still happens sometimes but uh you know, we've, we've done stuff like that so uh you know it's uh we don't know what exactly we're dealing with at this point uh science tells us we're dealing with nothing but science is not always right even though they think they are and yeah. uh, as a matter of fact, I think science is probably the one of the most egotistical uh, professions there is because <laughs> you can't yeah. tell them anything that they, do, they don't already know, whether it's wrong or right. But, uh, yeah. you know, we we just don't know what we're dealing with at this point. And anybody that says that we do is, is not being accurate in their, their uh, conclusions about what we're dealing with because, you know, we're dealing with uh, – we don't have the scientific we, – we look like we have scientific equipment, but we really don't. The X cam that right. we use that makes the uh, little stick figures. The guy that created mm-hmm. doesn't even know how it works. He'll admit that he has no clue how it works. And the work. spirit box, it just works, yeah. And the spirit box, which is if you've ever watched uh, uh, reality TV, goes. It's the little box that goes through the radio frequencies. And you've got to be real careful about that because sometimes I heard uh, uh, what they said was a spirit talk, and I, I basically heard them say, hey, this is WKCT. Well, that wasn't a spirit. That was a radio program they picked radio. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, our, we're very, very, very uh, primitive in our, our equipment that we can use to do what we need to do. And we can't really get science's help because they don't believe in it. They don't want to believe in it because if they do, uh, then you've got an issue with their uh, credibility with the other people. So. Right now, the equipment and stuff we use, we don't know what we're dealing with, and we really don't have the equipment to find out. But hopefully, if we just keep plugging away, one day we're going to catch something that can prove everybody you know, exactly what we're dealing with. Absolutely. What's the most haunted place you've ever investigated? Well, it was actually a place. It was a small cemetery, and it was in uh, uh, Hartford, Kentucky, which uh-huh. is pretty near where I am in Centertown. It was called Old Mill Cemetery, and I go there a lot because uh, we've captured so much stuff there. My wife had actually been scratched twice there, 
And wow. uh, yeah, we've always picked up good EVPs. Um, I've had an EVP one time that actually said, I'm going to kill Ina. And it was of a child. It wasn't saying it's going to kill somebody. You know how when a, a child will do something, another yeah. child said, I, you shouldn't have done it. I'm going to kill you. That's what it sounded right. like. And it was very, it was very Southern slang. So we knew mm-hmm. it was, and there was nobody else there. There was no male child there. But it's things like that um, that we pick up. We, every time we take somebody there, they always experience something. But, uh, you know, that's probably the, one of the most haunted locations I've ever been in. And then there was Edinburgh in Iowa, which is, we, that's where I saw my first full-body apparition. And Tell a lot us of about people, that. Yeah, it was kind of weird because it's got a basement area where everybody used to eat. Edinburgh used to be a, a it wasn't, a, everybody thinks it was an insane asylum. But what it used mm-hmm. to be is it used to be a location for the poor people to go, and they didn't have anywhere else to go, and they'd have to work on the farm. But the upstairs mm-hmm. of it was used to house people that had Down syndrome and stuff like that. And back mm-hmm. then, in the 1900s and late 1800s, uh, you know, they those people were considered, you know, mentally unstable, and it was, you know, right. we know it's just a normal condition. But back then, they didn't, and they were an embarrassment to their family. So Edinburgh was where they sent them to in Iowa, and they had several suicides there from people that, you know, that had Down syndrome and stuff like that. That uh, you know, basically committed suicide because they couldn't handle what was going on. But because Mm -hmm. of that interaction, Edinburgh really became a serious place. And when I was downstairs where they used to eat, I was walking upstairs to the second floor. And Edinburgh has got three stairs, uh, three stories to it. But I was walking Mm -hmm. up to the second floor where the main office is, and I looked to the right, and there was a man standing there in a brown coat with a brown hat. He was an elderly gentleman that had gray hair, and uh, he was leaning against the wall looking in a room. And I looked, mm-hmm. and I looked away, and I looked back. By the time I looked back, he was gone. So that was my first experience wow. with a full-body apparition. <laughs> wow. And I, I would say when he disappeared from me, I, I would say what I said, but, it, you know, we might be censored, so I won't, because it got to me a little oh, bit. <laughs> I, bet it, I, bet, I bet it did. Oh, wow. We had uh, – Denise was there, too, at the time, and she also uh, – she saw a figure uh, in a hallway move across in front of her, too. So we saw two apparitions there on the same night, which is very unusual. Wow. What is it – is it – did something happen there that that would make it haunted or like a tragedy or a lot yeah, of activity? There was, there was several, several back in the late 1800s up to, I think, you know, I'm not sure. It's in the 1960s, maybe, while well, it was still open later. Right. But a lot of people died on that premises. Oh, um, wow. Like I said, they a lot of them committed suicide because when they you go to Edinburgh as somebody that's categorized as having a mental condition, like I said, they were using the old-time standards. You weren't coming out. You were done. You were there until you died, usually. Yeah. And a lot of people committed suicide. So there's several, several deaths Um in fact, the girl, I know there was over 10 there, uh, and she's still investigating oh, wow. a couple suicides that happened there upstairs. And I think that had a great effect on it. And a lot of suffering was there. I mean, there's a lot of people, like I said, that when it first opened up, if they didn't have a place to go or they didn't have a home or something, um, they went to Edinburgh and they were forced to work to eat, basically. And I heard they weren't yeah. too nice about work to eat. They, they were basically free slave labor for little or no food and a little bit of shelter, so. With the death yeah. and the bad experiences there, that's you know, and that's usually where haunted locations occur. Everybody says, um, you know, they go, oh, was there a tragedy there? Well, you don't have to have a tragedy to have a haunted house, but the more the right. tragedy, the the worse the haunting is, I guess, is what I'm 
going to get at. So it it does have some correlation to a haunted house is the tragedy that happened to the place, whether it's good haunting or a bad haunting. Yeah. Have you ever had a haunting that you were scared or you? Uh, I wouldn't say scared. I would say concerned. Um, we had an instance one time oh, where, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not, I can't name names tonight cause we won't do it, but there was just an instance where, uh, somebody yeah. had a, we call it a possession, um, where they just went a little bit over and we had to actually restrain them. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was probably the most concern I've ever had at a location. But as far as being scared or anything, the one time that I actually had was scared and uh, I'm not sure, I don't remember where it was, but I was going upstairs and I was alone. And I started getting scared. I said, you know what, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to stop being scared and just do it. So ever since then, I've kind of told myself that whenever I've investigated, it's, you know, it's something we got to do and quit being scared about it. And it seems to work pretty good for me. Why do you hunt ghosts at night? Or Well, I have a theory on that. Now, number one, the reason people – we don't hunt ghosts at night because that's when the ghosts come out. We truly believe that there are spirits any time of the day. Right. But there's, there's not as much um, – and everybody asks that question, why do you always hunt at night? It's because there's not as much uh, interference with the investigation at night. If you ever oh, notice, like true. if you go to a place during the day, you've got cars going up and down the street all the time. Yeah, you don't have the true. same a amount of cars more, outside. A lot more energy. Yeah. 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 There's too much. And you've got people, you know, walking streets. You've got, uh, you know, cars blowing the horns. It's not, and it's hard to take uh, flash photography in the daylight and actually pick up mm-hmm. orbs. So it's not because it's more haunted at night. It's because it, we were able to collect more evidence at night than we are than during the day. That's the only reason we hunt at night. Tell me, I've also um, um, have had someone who said they didn't really see a ghost, but they thought they saw a shadow person. What's a shadow person? Well, have you that, ever seen that? Yeah, we've seen them before. And we're, like, again, we're not really sure what they are. Um, some people believe that the shadow people or shadow persons or whatever you want to call them, they actually live in the shadows. They can't survive out in the daylight. Uh, the light may hurt them in some way. I'm not saying vampires. I'm just saying it's something we don't know. It cannot yeah, survive. Yeah, the energy. It they can survive. Yeah. yeah, it's the energy. They just can't take the light. Right. So a shadow person right. has a darker figure, and you usually only see them at night. Now, sometimes people say, you know, I've seen a shadow figure during the day, and you've got to be careful about that. Uh, as an example, we were at one place, and uh, I'm not going to name the name again, but we were at a place, and they were talking about a shadow figure they kept showing up. And uh, mm-hmm. I looked down the hallway. Um, it, it, what it was, it was a closet, and they said you could see a shadow figure in the closet. But as we mm-hmm. walked down the highway, or highway, as we walked down the hallway, I looked behind me, and there was two double doors that went outside, and outside from them double doors was a street light. So when mm-hmm. people walked in front of the doors, the shadow would cast itself upon the closet. So if you weren't paying attention, you could act your own shadow from the light. You would think it was a shadow figure if you were walking by it. So mm-hmm. a lot of times when people say, I've seen a shadow figure, they probably really haven't seen a shadow figure. They've probably seen something that they uh, self-made that or something. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's other times you I've seen shadow figures where it was a shadow figure. Um, we've been, well, actually in my own house, we've seen a shadow figure that's went across our uh, living room floor a couple of times. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, no damage or anything like that when it's not scary, but, we, you know, there is shadow figures out there. And we don't know what they are, but a lot of times when people say they see shadow figures, 
they're easy to debunk because if you really look at it, what they've just seen is a shadow of something else that's going across somewhere or something. Yeah. But um, shadow figures seem to be a uh, a popularity thing in, in ghost investigations. But like again, you've got to be very careful and 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 try to debunk your own work before you present it as factual. Because if you yeah. don't debunk it, somebody else is going to, and it kind of makes the rest of your work uncredible. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that that makes sense. So do people, how do people, do most people come, obviously there's sites that are kind of well known to be haunted and, and you can go there, but do people come to you and say what kinds of things, like we hear a noise or, or how, how, what do people do when they reach out to you? Well, a lot of people, like you said, my, my website, KentuckyGhostHunter.com, a lot of people will send me messages through that or through the Facebook page, and they'll say, hey, I've got a uh, problem at my house. And I really don't have people that send me – communicating about being haunted or whatever is really hard because you're not going to be mm-hmm. believed. But those right. that have experienced it to the point that it's beyond them caring if someone believes them or not, that's usually when I hear from them. And mm-hmm. I can't, being on the show that I've got and, uh, you know, people are following me from just not consecutive. They follow me from everywhere. So I get messages from all right. over the place saying, hey, can you help me? Can you help? Well, I can't go to California to help somebody. It's just, you know, I'm right. not going to fly there and fly back. Because if, if you're ever dealing with paranormal, somebody comes to help you. If they ever charge you or want to charge you, you need to run because real paranormal right. investigators do not charge. But, uh, oh, that's good to you know, know. yeah. yeah uh, but. We, uh, I have people that I know in different states, and I refer the case over to them. And uh, usually that's how it comes about. If somebody will email me and say, hey, I've got a problem. Can you help me? And then I'll say, I'm going to refer you to this group. And then that group will call them and talk to them. And they'll go to their house and uh, discuss what's going on with them the first time and uh, make sure that it's a legitimate haunting. Sometimes people mm-hmm. think they're being haunted, and what it is is they're just paranoid. Or, mm-hmm. or something like that. But if they really feel it's legitimate haunting, those groups will go back out and help them uh, deal. First, they'll investigate and see if, if they can find out anything. And then they'll go from there. And if there's anything else that needs to be done, uh, they'll take care of it. Maybe, uh, you know, trying to help them get rid of it or trying to help them deal with uh, what they've got in their house or business. Mm-hmm. Our, our, um, in your experience, if you've investigated something, and and you feel that it it actually does have a spirit, is are you is that something you're able to do to get the spirit to leave? You know I don't think there's anybody that you're going to see people say they can get it to leave, but I just don't think that you know burning a bush or something like that in somebody's house is going to actually get rid of a spirit. That makes for good showmanship, right. but it's not going to work. Um, and, you know, most times in a people that come in and says, we have cleansed this house. You can now live here for and free. Two weeks later, right. they got the problem back because that's not how right. you get rid of the spirit. I think the spirit has to leave on its own. And a lot of times I don't think you can you can get – you can't get a spirit to leave unless it wants to leave. The best chance you have is to live with it on some kind of grounds where, uh, you know, you both – they can survive and you can survive without, you know, scratching each other or throwing things at each other mm-hmm. or whatever you got to do. But as far as getting rid of spirits, I, I just don't uh, – I don't believe a lot of the times what people do to get rid of them works because I don't think they're, they're – uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess it's just my opinion, but I just don't think the process they're doing is going to work because I just – I don't see anything like 
like I said, burning sage or jumping up and down on a pogo right. stick or anything like that's going to force a spirit to leave unless it wants to. So me yeah. personally, I don't try to get rid of them because I don't believe it's possible. But there is people out there that will come and say they can get rid of them, uh, like through uh, um, oh, uh, cleansing and stuff like that, or they'll bring a priest yeah. in or something like that, which that doesn't work either. I've seen people do that. They did it. There's a place called Bobby Mackey's in Kentucky. You, have you ever heard of that? It's near Cincinnati. No, tell us about that. Okay, Bobby Mackey's is a uh, – it's actually a country center called Bobby Mackey that owned it. And it's supposed to be one of the most haunted places in the United States. They've had several different uh, ghost shows go there and, and do uh, uh, programs there about the hauntings and everything like that. But one particular show I'm talking about, after the show was over, they brought a, a priest in to uh, basically get rid of the spirits and everything. And it uh, didn't work. Two days later, they were having the same issues and everything. So I guess I was just using an example. I just don't think that, you know, anything like that's going to get spirits to go. They've got to want to leave and uh, – Either you can persuade them to leave, or you just have to deal with them. Are most hauntings benign? Um, they're not like uh, they're not evil. I would say ninety-eight percent of the hauntings are not evil. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the hauntings have gotten a bad name because of television and movies and right. uh, it really it reality ghost shows. Because you're not going to get very good rings if you go in, oh, thank you, instead of, oh, my God, right. something's <laughs> ripping my guts out. <laughs> yeah, right. You're going to get more ratings with being scared and violent than you're going to be with mellow and not. So, um, yeah, most of them are not evil. I mean, I think you're going to run it. Like the gentleman we ran over at Octagon House, I don't – he was – and I've got a philosophy about some of these guys, and I'll tell it real quick because I know we're going to run out of time here pretty uh-huh. soon. But uh, okay. I, I – call some of the hauntings that, that are, I call them actually prisons because I believe there's entities out there that I call wardens that are stronger than other spirits and they will uh-huh. not let them leave the, the establishment. Uh, but if you think about it, if you had a spirit that, uh, or somebody, they are spirits from when we die that died in 1790, they've had a right. hundred or 200 years to learn how to use their abilities. You have somebody brand new that dies in 2018 uh, they're not going to mm-hmm. be as strong and know how to react under the new condition. It's like an infant and an adult. Basically, right, it's a growth sense. process. Yeah. So the wardens will not let them leave. And I think we get a lot of hauntings where one person is in control and the others can't leave because he won't let them. And I believe those people are people that did not want to die or pass on. And they mm-hmm. want to keep it where they are as close to their time period and how they remember it as they can. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman in the octagon house that was screaming and everything at me, he was actually the owner of the house when it was first developed, according to what the psychic told me. So he wanted everything to stay in the slave days and the 17, you know, early 1790, right. or 1700s, late 1700s. So he was forcing the people that was dying there to stay with him so everything would remain the same. I think there's a lot of that going on and until a spirit actually develops itself sometimes to uh, fight back. I think it's trapped there. Sometimes and, and maybe yeah. sometimes we can help with that by saying, hey, you know, guess what? It's you know, you thought it was, you still think it's the year 1790. Well, guess what? It's 2018. Oh, You've been dead 200 yeah. years. You need to go. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that helps. Make it go. Sometimes it don't. But uh, now most of the time, like you said, most of the hauntings that we've ever dealt with have not been evil. It's just been uh, something trying to communicate, say, hey, we're still here, which is good. So tell me about, real quickly, tell us about your podcast. I have listened to it. It's very good. You've got a lot of interesting guests. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, we. It's just we like I. Uh, I guess I told you before we came on. We've been on radio actually. We've been on up to seven stations in Kentucky at one point, and a lot of people do not like paranormal talk because I'm in the southern part of Kentucky where it's a lot of Bible uh-huh. Belt. So we've had some shows that were canceled because of the the Bible Belt position they're in and all that good stuff. But uh, we've been at it for a while now. This is our we started in 2014, like I said. So this is our fourth year at it. We've got good followers in Australia, England, um, oh, just everywhere. We've got people that listen to us everywhere. But uh, we moved over to BBS Radio, which is just bbs.com, and we've had mm-hmm. really good uh, – we've had 60-some – they said it was more than that, but last time we were on, they said there were 60-some affiliates that signed up to put our, to broadcast our show on Tuesday nights. So That's it's becoming great. popular. Yeah, we've, we've increased our uh, – well, I just learned this last night. We've actually increased our listeners by 127% in less than four weeks. That's right. So we're doing something well, right. So we're doing something right. Well, I hope anyway, our show tonight you increase it more. Well, I hope so too. But our guests, uh, I mean, like tonight, our guest tonight is actually a medium who communicates with spirits. And uh, she is. Go- she told me there's three spirits that want to specifically give me messages. So she's going to do a reading on me tonight uh, during the program. And uh, – I get to uh, find out what these spirits want to say to me, hopefully. So that's what our show is tonight. But we try to keep guests like that on all the time uh, because there's a lot of people that don't know anything about paranormal. And we just kind of, you know, train them and we just talk like me and you are talking. We don't have a serious Mm -hmm. sit down and try to debunk stuff. We just talk and uh, enjoy our different people's opinions. So, and um, if they want to find out more about them, tell them about your website. Well, it's KentuckyGhostHunter.com, and it is spelled out, and you can find out everything there. You can show, find out links to the show. You can listen to past episodes. I believe that you can also, if I'm not mistaken, because I said there's a lot of people out here, but iTunes has our shows now. Um, oh, shoot. There's just a bunch that have our shows, but our list of our affiliates are on there. You can get on there, and if you ever wanted to listen to the show, you can listen to it right there or get on to the different affiliate. But every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock Central Time, uh, we're on air, so – if they just go to you BBS, are also, you're also on YouTube. That's how be on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, we're on YouTube. I, like I said, there's so many different. I don't even know how many. I don't know where we all are anymore. I've lost count. <laughs> I knew it was. I knew it was YouTube, and I know iTunes. Oh, iHeart's taking us too. iHeart just took us. iHeart oh, wow. Radio. So we're going to be on yeah. iHeart too. I just found that out yesterday. So I, like I said, when I was talking to him during a break last Tuesday. I said, well, we've got 60-some affiliates. No, 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 no. You've got more than that. I don't know what the count is right now. He's, and he told me that the iHeart just took us on. So, you know, we're we're proud of the show. We really are. It's doing really well. Yeah, you're, and if you're they, so- anybody wants to listen to it, yeah, if anybody wants to listen to it live, it's just uh, bbsradio.com forward slash the Kentucky Ghost Hunter. And you can go to it and listen to it tonight at 9 o'clock. Absolutely. It sounds great. Well, before we close, tell me if somebody – wants to go on a haunting what do you suggest they do I, you need to be careful about who you go on a uh, investigate i want to say haunting who you go on an investigation with yeah because there's a lot of new people out there that don't really know what they're doing and i would get associated a group usually will let you go out but a lot of times the group will pay f- to train you a little bit uh mm-hmm. to give you your own training they won't I mean, not pay. They won't make you pay, but they'll train you a little bit so you know what you're right. doing. Because there's a lot of people, like I know people that go out into a graveyard, and before you go out there, you should go during the day 
and kind of get a feel of the place because in graveyards there's small tombstones. I've seen people trip over tombstones at night because they didn't even know it was there. And always right. get permission. That's, that's the biggest thing with paranormal investigators and new people. They break into places instead of getting permission, and then they get on YouTube and stuff say, look where we investigated, first time ever. Of course, they broke yeah. the law to do it, and that's not yeah, a good they go thing to, jail, to do. Okay. So, yeah, but you just need to make sure you get with somebody that's got more than a few months' experience, get with somebody that's been around for a couple of years, and you know, train up with them. And if you want to start your own group, do it. But before you go out there and do anything by yourself, you know, get somebody that can help you to, to learn how to do it first because there's a lot more to it than just what you see on TV. Matter of fact, I'm going to say before we get off here, ghost hunting is one of the most boringest things you ever want to do at night. It looks so adventurous when you're seeing it on TV, but you got to remember you're seeing – 45 minutes of coverage for somebody that's been there 12 hours straight and only 45 yeah. minutes of it's being shown on TV. The rest of the time, it's so boring. So you've got you to gotta be really, really into it, and you really mm-hmm. need to be, like I said, be trained before you go out there because you can really mess up and hurt yourself in certain circumstances if you're not careful about what you're looking for. Okay. Well, Dean, sign off. Go on your, uh, your podcast, which I'm getting ready to listen to. And thank you so much. This is really You've been a great guest, and we are going to have to have you on again. Anytime you need me, just give me a buzz, and I'll be glad to be a guest. All right. We'll go to your podcast, and I will hopefully listen to you soon. All right. Thank you, ma'am. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, thank you for listening tonight. Again, we'd like to thank our special guest tonight, uh, Dean Knight, the Kentucky Ghost uh, Ghost Hunter. Um, if you would like to find out more information about the Kentucky Ghost Hunter and his podcast, which is on BBS Radio, please go to KentuckyGhostHunter.com. That's K-E-N-T-U-C-K-Y-G-H-O-S-T-H-U-N-T-E-R.com. And you can link to his show and get a lot more information. Well, the wheel of the year has reached its pinnacle, and a time of reflection and renewal draws upon us. As we reach across the veil and walk between the gates of time, we honor those who passed before us and open our hearts to the lessons of memory and the wisdom of ancestors. Join this community at Circle Sanctuary Sound Festival as we celebrate endings that are beginnings, revel in the today, and and step with open eyes into the season of transformation. An old year dies and a new one is born from the ashes. Salon is a time of tears and joy, of spooks and giggles, of looking to the past and embracing the future. Come help us turn the wheel with reverie and re- reflection at Circle Sanctuary Sound Festival. It's held October 26th through 28th at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve near Barneville, Wisconsin. Remember, this festival is for adults and families with children. You want more information? Then go to circlesanctuary.org, and you'll be able to get information about Circle um, Salon Festival on the front page, and you'll also be able to register. Besides Dean, I'd like to thank David, our sound engineer, for his technical expertise. I'd like to thank Pagans tonight on Blog Talk Radio for hosting our show. And finally, I'd like to thank all of you out there, our listeners, for your continued support of all of our shows here on Circle Radio. You remember, we're here each Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Central, or 9 p.m. Eastern time zone. And each week we explore various topics of interest to the pagan community. We will now transition our show with a musical selection. Good night, everyone, and blessed be. One spirit in the dark. 
like a candle wavers. Many spirits joined as one, burned with the power of the blazing sun. Listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, 
one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight. 